All right, here I am, uh, another episode of Breaking Changes. Uh, I uh, brought on another friend of mine, kind of going through my Rolodex and finding interesting folks in the API space, um, Mike Amundsen, who is a uh, has been a prolific traveler and storyteller in the space. And I've spent lots of time talking about uh, the API lifecycle, API design, API testing, and 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 uh, and a variety of topics with. But he has spent way more time in front of enterprise audiences trying to understand uh, what what their challenges are. So uh, thanks, Mike, for joining us. It's it's great it's great to join you. And like you were saying. Um, we spent a lot of time at various places, <laughs> locations around the world on various stages over the last decade or so, and I really appreciated the time. Learned a lot, a, 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 lot, of my, uh, a lot of my successes, a lot of my explorations really were born out of talks we've had together. So I really appreciate it very much. And it's great to join you today. Well, thank you. I'm I'm building uh, this show on the backs of, of friends like you, who I think we've we've all scratched each other's backs over the years. So I appreciate your time. Um, I love it. And in, in in you you doing this and and working this out over the last decade or so that you've been doing this, what what is it that enterprise find useful that 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 keep bringing you back? What 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 grabs their attention um, as you've traveled the world working with different enterprise groups? Well, um, I can't. I'm not always sure, and it's different depending on on different organizations. But I think one of the things that I've tried to do throughout all the time that I've been in the space, and it goes back a ways, is try to find connections. Try to try to remind people that something has happened before. Um, that there's someone else working on a similar problem or has a similar idea. So a lot of times what, what people invite me in for are uh, just kind of, you know, to give them a sense of like, are they on the right path? Are they headed in the right direction? For everyone, this is a journey. For, for whether you're a startup or an enterprise, this is, this is another footstep, another footstep, another footstep. So uh, I, a lot of times the role that I play is literally to say, yeah, 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 you're, you're headed in the right direction and here's a flashlight. Here's, here's how you could see a little bit further ahead. Um, on, on sort of the bigger on, on the bigger picture, uh, I try to think a lot about what's it going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, possibly now even 30 years from now. I've been starting to do that. So a lot of times people are, are asking me questions thinking like, okay, I think I have a handle on today, but what do I need to pay attention to in, in the years ahead? And again, that's the same thing. What are other people doing? What are the connections? So I think it has a lot to do with being able to, to bring other perspectives or other points of view into the enterprise itself and then give them a handle on, on what to do or where to go or what choices to make next. Yeah, no, I think that's super important. It's a lot of folks think this is just purely technical and in reality, it's, 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 it's more human-based, story-based. Oh, yeah. And as yeah. at, I've, I've known you as a storyteller in this space, I think we both spent a lot of time kind of crafting stories, sharing stories, um, and, and evolving those. And over the years, we've both done a lot of traveling to kind of get the word out and do what we do. Um, but what, what's the make, makeup of, of what you're doing nowadays between traveling, mm -hmm. writing, speaking, and, and all of that? 
Yeah. So certainly the last 18 months, the the, the quarantine era has, has, has changed that quite a bit. So I haven't actually visited a customer location uh, since February or March of 2020 when the lockdown started. So I've actually spent a lot more time here in what I call Research Central, which is my basement in Kentucky. And I'm I'm spending a lot of time, a lot more time writing than I used to. And in fact, I'm kind of cutting back a bit. I I, I kind of divide my time between um, some online writing, some book projects, uh, some experiments that I've always promised myself that I would do, and spending time with a handful of customers, doing a little bit of training, a little bit of advising. Um, so there's a handful of startups that I spend time with. Um, so it's it's really now uh, less in person and more remote. And I'm feeling that in the truest sense of the world. I'm feeling remote. There have been some recent things that came up and somebody asked me my opinion on something. And as you know, as you just said, so much of this is social and cultural. And I felt a little bit at a loss because it's been a year and a half since I've actually been in uh, an enterprise, been in a culture, been in a group. So uh, so there's been some distance in the, in the last year and a half, and I'm, I'm hoping they can kind of improve that. But it's mostly now writing and a little bit of training and some advising. So when you're diving in in, in, in your research laboratory, uh, mm -hmm. how and, and when you're writing books and writing topics, how do you prioritize what what you're focusing on? What 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 helps what floats to the top is, is being something important for for Mike's time? Yeah. So um, I'm I'm distressingly boring about this. Um, there are certain days a week that I'm working on a book project. There are certain days a week and I'm working on a blog project. There are certain days a week when I'm working on a coding project um, and then they bleed across. So um, I might do a little bit of coding every day, but the, like this is the day when I'm really focusing on a, on a coding project or this is the day when I'm really focusing on, on a, a blog article. And what, what flows to the top to me are two things. I have long lists. The, the list, I know you're probably like this too, but the list of blog topics is, just goes on forever. Like I, So I could just sort of pick. Um, uh, so there's always something in there. Uh, when I write books, I've joked more than once. Uh, when I write books, there are a lot of things that don't make it into the book. They end up in a file uh, folder called gutter. It's like they're in the gutter. Like they, they just sort of like the cutting room floor in a movie. I have whole books that are just from the gutter material. So sometimes when I'm thinking about writing longer form pieces, I actually go to the gutter. I go to the things that got cut out of a book. And, you know, that's a that's a long form article. That's like a medium size art, you know, a medium or a, a longer piece article, several thousand words. So a lot of times that's what bubbles to the top. In terms of code right now, um, I'm working on, a, I, I usually end up just picking like a sort of a passion-y project, something I'm really passionate about. Uh, and right now, I'm very passionate about this idea of command line interfaces for for the web and for hypermedia. So I've, I had this thing on, uh, you know, in my tickle file for more than five years, maybe maybe seven. And uh, finally, I've been hinting at it and talking about how it could be done. And what happens is nobody's interested. <laughs> so I kind of go, well, all right, I guess I'm going to have to do this. So right now I'm working on this idea of a kind of a hypermedia REPL, a kind of a stateful engine that lets me interact with APIs in command line interface and it's scriptable. And so, so every week I'm spending at least one day working on that. And, and that actually bleeds into other projects too. So it's actually affecting my, my writing as well. Once I realize, oh, that's what it takes to do that, 
now I have something to write about. Like if you're writing a client app, this is what you're going to need from the service or something like that. So they kind of bounce off each other. Yeah, no, I think I have always uh, valued your deep thinking on subjects. And <laughs> I, I find your writing tends to go into areas that I don't think always are going to get paid and uh, be, be funded by the enterprise organizations that no. I work with sometimes. Yeah. And, but in the long haul of things, there's, there's some serious value to be extracted and mine there from, from the work you're doing, whether it's specification based or whether it's, it's how you approach the design or, or testing or other things. And then thinking outside the box at the command line level, I think is super relevant right now, whether your direct hypermedia project is is the thing or you know exactly. how do we use the command line in in a more meaningful way so i'm always happy yeah. uh to see what what you're bouncing on and i would say i'm a, a kindred spirit in the same way uh I, you know finding interesting things that keep our brain going so i'm i'm thankful for that but you know you're you're known for api design and i wanted i want mm -hmm. a, a lot of deep thinking in that area and i want to dive in there but first I like to kind of look at the personal side of, of who you are and kind of set the set the stage. And so this okay. might be a little weird, but um, are you related to the famous explorer, uh, Roald Amundsen? Are you a family uh, member? Um, okay, so the KG answer is uh, we suspect yes. <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, I remember as a small child, uh, when I was uh, spending time with my grandparents, who uh, at the time were living in Yellowstone, my grandfather was a park ranger for the Yellowstone uh, National Park in the 50s and 60s. I remember spending time with them. There were pictures of Roald Amundsen. There were uh, dog traces and snowshoes. And I was told, I remember being told that they were artifacts. They were you know, items that they had kept from Amundsen's experience. Now, whether I've sort of manufactured that, you know how I was like a kid, like six, seven, eight, something like that. Whether I really manufactured that or not, I, I can't really tell you. Uh, I have actually spent a bunch of time um, learning about uh, Roald's life. And I know that officially he was never married. So if I'm related in any way, it's going to be indirectly. He had two brothers and I think two sisters. Um, so there's so there's probably some uh, some connection there. I act as if I'm a Roald Amundsen descendant. In other words, he was he had these traits about him. Um, he was he was always thinking ahead. He was always uh, re ready to adapt. He was always trying to learn something from everybody around him. Um, he was also a bit of a pain in the ass, which is probably people would tell me is probably right. Um, so I've adopted a lot of that sort of persona. But whether or not there's actually any real Roald corpuscles in here we don't really know <laughs> well what i like about that because uh is is the storytelling aspect and how yeah. we kind of yeah. fabricate these things in our heads and believe them and yeah. how they get introduced to us and and whether they're true or not but then they become true um yeah. i think that's for me like how how api knowledge is passed down as part of the api life cycle within enterprise organizations there's a lot to extract from that so uh, another kind of vein I'm, I'm always trying to touch on because I always want to try to get other folks into our industry and, and make what we do accessible 
how did you get into APIs and computer stuff? Are you classically trained in computer science? How did, how did you find your way? Yeah, no, I'm definitely not. A, I have no degrees in computers or mathematics or science. My, uh, I do have a couple of degrees, but they're in music composition and theory. I was an arts major. As a matter of fact, in high school, at high school, when I had to go to college, it was a real toss-up between theater arts and music. So that's where some of this sort of story and demonstrative ideas come from. I think it's, it's kind of always been in me. So I, I, I stumbled upon uh, computers because I had been spending a lot of time as a musician uh, writing. Back, th back in the day, you wrote local jingles for stores and stuff like this. And I was writing a lot of music. And my younger brother-in-law, I think he was like 13 or 14 at the time, got a TI-99 computer for Christmas and didn't care about it at all, one whit, wasn't interested. And I was like, huh. And the first thing I did, of course, because me being me, is I figured out how to program it to play music. So I actually had some MIDI interfaces, so I got it to, to actually play sounds. Then I got hooked. So I started using it more and more. And then I was working in an arts organization, and I helped a bunch of artists collect up their information. It was actually a visual arts group. So all of their uh, items that they had uh, been on show and where they had been. And then I got involved in the Ohio Arts Organization on their mini computer system, helping them design an information system. And I just kept kind of building from there. Um, so it was just by happenstance. It was that bridge from the music world into the computing world. And since then, I've always sort of brought that uh, creative, artistic um, muse to the way I think about computers and, I, and the role that computers play in our lives. And that affects a lot of the, the things I get interested in, just the API world. So for me, APIs are a way to establish a framework where other people can collaborate together. And that's a lot, the, a lot like the way I would play music. We would all have the same basic chart, which you could think of as like the open API document, the, the thing that explains how everything relates. And then we all play, which you can think of as different client applications sort of in concert together. So in, in very much sense, the APIs are really, really interesting to me because they're a collaborative space. They're a space where lots of people can get involved. I, I use the phrase, I think you've heard me say this, often um, you're creating, when you create an API as a producer, you're, you're helping people you've never met solve problems you never thought of. You're creating this sort of solution, this problem space, this domain where people can be creative. Uh, and that relates to me to a lot of that music background that I, that I had that goes back so far. Yeah, I think that's such a valuable background and, and setting the stage for where you're at. And the other, the other aspect that I know you for, the storytelling piece, I get a mm. lot of pushback on this one as, as being a storyteller and really pushing the value of it. Now, this show is targeting business leadership, engineering leadership. And in a lot of those circles, I'll get pushback that, you know, storytelling doesn't matter. It's not something that's going to generate revenue. It's it's it doesn't have that that direct value sometimes where I argue many, you know, very differently. I feel very what what how would you convince leadership that that your brand of storytelling matters on the ground? Yeah, I've, I've definitely had similar conversations. Um, I, I think probably the most direct way that I can uh, relate uh, to this is 
I spent I spent a good deal of time in Scandinavia because I have Scandinavian roots. I have connections to companies in Sweden and Norway and Denmark, and I've worked at several of them over the over the past decades. And there's a there's a habit, there's a pattern uh, in the Scandinavian countries of always keeping the the company's history. There's a person or a group in charge of keeping the company's history, and that's what they call the saga in in the language, right? the saga of the company, like where we started, where we've been, where we're going. And that is storytelling. So a big part of cultural organizations uh, in the Scandinavian world, and I think it's probably in other places too, but it's the one that I learned from, is that every company has a story and that containing, uh, continuing that story and relating that story is how you teach culture. And uh, culture is how we do things here. That's whatever your culture is, That's it's how we do things here. And how do you tell people how you do things here? It's most often, it's not because you handed them a book. It's because you told them a story. Well, we do it this way because when Mike was you know, first here, he had read this book and he thought this was the greatest way to do API. So now all our APIs are that way. That's not a technical thing. That's a story. And I think um, stories become super important for customers. That's why we have advertising. Right, they're stories, they're little mini stories. So uh, while there are lots of technical elements, um, it, it's not the technical parts. Everyone has the same technical parts. You have the same access to the same technology that I have for the most part. But what makes us different, what would make my company different from your company is the stories. The stories we tell each other and the stories where we come from and where we're going. And that becomes the, the advantage element. And then finally, um, stories are how we remember. Um, I, you know, you and I talked about this a long time ago, like more than a decade ago, I think. I was super frustrated that I was giving very accurate technical talks and boring everybody I was, I was talking to. It wasn't making a connection. And you started telling me about this notion of being a storyteller. And typical for me, like I just, I go nuts on it. I say, okay, great, we're gonna tell stories. So I've started to incorporate stories in, in, in what I do as a way to help people find a hook, find something they remember. A joke is a story, an anecdote is a story. Jeff Bezos has dozens and dozens of stories that we connect to. Mark Andreessen has stories, uh, you know, Elon Musk has stories. So it's how we communicate. And so I, I try to, con uh, to, to remind folks, stories are inescapable, we might as well use them to our advantage as much as we possibly can. And that's what I try to help people do. I couldn't have said it better. I can't add to that at oh, all. I, that's that. I think you probably could have. But that's me. <laughs> exactly my argument on why storytelling matters. So let's, let's dive, let's dive in to the, the, uh, not quite the technical, but you're really known for your knowledge in the in the area of API design. You spent a lot of time thinking. You've written books. You've done lots of talks on the subject. Why does API design matter to business? Yeah, so um, you're right. I've, I've spent a lot of time on this, and and I I've spent a lot of time on it because of this this idea that of connections. Remember, I talked earlier. Connections are sort of what drive my my, my work, like how do we get connected? And the API is the connection, the API. You can think of the API as the packaging for your product from a business standpoint. It's what people see. If you're in this virtual world where you're delivering virtual goods, the API becomes not only the package, but then it also becomes the transport. It becomes the, the, the persona 
that that I know your company by. A company that does a great job of of using this notion of of know us by our API and and connect with us by our API as the one that I often use is Twilio. You know, they build a they built a great brand out of the notion of that we understand your developers and what they need. So um, what what uh, what I think is really key in in all of this is if you can master the notion of design you know, all the way to product design. We've been designing products for centuries. We can design products in the virtual space just as much as we would design products in the in the physical space. So if you can master that notion or at least adopt that kind of idea, uh, then you've you've got a real opportunity because that means you're trying to solve a customer problem uh, in a viable in a business viable kind of way. So it's not just that you understand the customers, but that you can deliver for customers. And interfaces are the way you do that. And the I in API is interface, application programming interface. We know this from UIs. You put the button in the wrong spot, people can't find it. If you put this uh, this button too close to that button, they do the wrong thing and they blame you. So the same thing happens for APIs. As a matter of fact, I just recently have been revisiting the notion of information architecture uh, from uh, Moraville, his book, Information Architecture, the Polar Bear book from O'Reilly, mm. and using things like uh, tree testing, where you, it, they, when they were designing websites, they would literally say, okay, you're at the homepage. Tell me how you would get to find um, the contact information to send an email. And then there's this test pattern where you literally pull down what is what is available from this homepage. Oh, it says about us. Let me try that. And then it tells you what's available from about us. And it says, contact us. Oh, it's a, you click and contact us. And then it says, well, you can do email or phone. So designing APIs like that, like how do you get to checking out your shopping cart? If you start from this spot, make some, make some assumptions. A well-designed API, your developer is going to be able to make those kinds of steps. And more often than not, they'll be correct and they'll think your API is great. And that's because you've done some design work for your audience. And by the way, the audience of um, a bunch of C++ developers that have advanced degrees is very different from the audience that works in JavaScript in a startup or uh, in the spreadsheet in an HR department. So designing that solution for those different audiences means you're paying attention to each of them. And that's what I love about the API space. I can package the product differently right? It's, it's, in, it's a powder form here. It's a pill form here. It's a liquid form here. Whoever needs whatever, whatever's convenient, I can reach that audience. And to me, that's why design is so magical and so powerful. I can help people design what their customers need. And those customers might be the team, you know, across the hall, might be the, the subsidiary in uh, another continent, and it might be a customer in somebody's house. Yeah, uh, the API, uh, depending on 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 trying to reach your audience, what what you're trying to deliver with your product or services. Why why did the the current incarnation of of AP or or Web API or REST API, whatever we choose to call it, why why do you feel that it's it's so dominant in 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 how we approach and do APIs right now? Ah, uh, you know, I have to I have to say I think it's 
absolutely pragmatic. It's one of the easiest ways to solve the problem. It's one of the easiest ways to distribute a product. It's one of the easiest ways to get a website up, to get a service up and running, to get connected to somebody else. Because we had other things before this. We had the source and we had CompuServe and we had, uh, Microsoft had a thing for a while. I can't remember what that used to be called. There were these sort of like closed systems and we had AOL and all these other things. Um, but they ended up eventually giving way to this sort of World Wide Web, this sort of anarchic space where um, anybody could post anything uh, anywhere without asking permission from anyone. I could just put a server up. I didn't have to subscribe to AOL or Microsoft or, or, or any of that. So I think it's just pragmatic. Um, so I think what happens is people are creative, mothers of you know, invention. It's like, you know, okay, so we got HTTP. I can set up a server without bothering anybody. What can I do with this? And then figuring out how to turn this HTTP protocol into something that makes sense for enterprises, for businesses, for organizations. Uh, you know, the whole adopting of the create, read, update, delete pattern, what we call the CRUD of, of API, the resource, you know, the technical resource aspect. That's just an invention that's slapped onto HTTP. That has nothing to do with the specification or what it was designed for, but it works. I mean, we lucked in. The people who, who built those in, initial specifications for HTTP really, they made great choices, and the you know, people who directly followed them made great choices. So this is a super flexible space. I think it's just, you know what? This is the easiest way to do this. Let's get going. Let's get started. And I, and I, and I like that. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel, felt it was accessible. A lot of programmers were like, Oh, this yeah. is something I can relate to. I can understand yeah. it. The cognitive load of getting up and going isn't too heavy, but I think yeah. a lot of folks still see API design as, as very coupled with the, 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 the domain or, or the path and HTTP is, is that API design or is, is there a much bigger world that people should be thinking about? Well, it's yes to both, right? So that certainly is API design, but we can design APIs for MQTT. We can design topics and messages and events. We can design uh, queries in GraphQL, right? We can, we can design function pieces uh, with gRPC or Thrift or whatever. Um, the implementation is just part of that cycle of design. I think a lot of design, the way I talk about design in my training uh, with organizations is I always want to put off the implementation until the last responsible moment. That's a Mary Poppendick phrase. You know, put off that decision until putting it off any longer would be irresponsible. I want to write code last. I want to try to avoid it. I want to make sure I've got their audience right. I've got their needs right. I've got the accessibility that you talk about correct. And then we'll pick, we'll pick the format, we'll pick the protocol, we'll decide if it's gonna be gRPC or GraphQL or, or whatever it's gonna be uh, later in the story. Uh, and in fact, try to make a design that allows us to change our mind later. We might build an HTTP uh, resource-based uh, implementation of that design and then suddenly realize what we really need is an event-driven architecture. But we can use the same design we just implement it differently. So um, I think I think there, there is a wider picture and I try to remind people, you know, we've had HTTP for about 30 years, 25, 30 years. You know, at some point there's gonna be something else. And that may be five years from now, maybe 10 years from now, maybe 20 years from now. 
And I want to be ready for that something else too. I want to have my design chops and my skills and my ability to apply a solution uh, flexible enough that when it comes time to do it in another space, it'll still work out. So I think design is everything we've learned from products in the physical world applies to the virtual world as well. And HTTP is one of those spaces. Yeah, design, I mean, I, I like how you put it because it reflects how I see design is it's thinking in the long term, it's it's planning, it's having a strategy, it's being thoughtful about how, you know, where we're at, where we're going. But design is still very, um, there's, there's, there's plenty of folks who think that it's, it's not always necessary. It's, and I would say it's, it's in the last five to seven, eight years, it's, it's gotten more traction. And there's a lot of people, you know, there's concepts like API design first, or, you know, that people are thinking about before they ever write code. But I would say the the dominant paradigm that if you if you talk to the average enterprise organization um, that listens to maybe Gartner, that API management is is what you do. And so shifting from design, what is API management? Would you say what does it consist of? Because I think there's a lot of different definitions of that. Yeah, there there are a lot. Um... So I and a few colleagues have worked on a book called Continuous API Management. We're actually finishing up a second edition now. And one of the one of the themes in the reviewers and the people we shared the first edition with and the readers, and now that we're sharing early editions of the second are, what is the real definition? What are you really trying to tell us? There's still some kind of confusion. And typical for I and some of my colleagues, we don't really want to come down and like just one definitive thing because we want this to last. Definitions change. I think one of the one of the things that's come out over time, API management. Um, we really have come to the conclusion in this in this project that it's about making good decisions at the right time. And uh, that's really what management is, right? So if you think about management in the sense of any kind of organizational management. You want to get resources in the right place at the right time. You want to, you want people to be skilled up in the right way at the right time. You want to be able to respond to a, a problem if it comes up. You want to be able to plan ahead, have a horizon, give people time to experiment. You want to be able to connect with your consumers, whatever that is, and you want to nurture your overall culture. Those are all things that we want to do in any organization. And that applies to the API space as well. You want to plan ahead enough, like we were saying, where technology might change. There's, there's a line that I've used frequently. Um, while the technology changes, lucky for us, the problems are still the same. So we're, we're working with the same problems we were working with 30 years ago. It's just that we have different tools. Sometimes that makes it easier. But we have to you have to do all those things. I need to be ready to respond. That means I need to design a system where I have some observability so I can tell if something's going on, right? Uh, uh, I need to be able to, to upskill people. That means we need to have some processes and ways to help people design the systems they need in order to solve the problems they have. So I think API management is just like any other kind of management. It's just applied to this virtual space. And I think we learn so much from all the other aspects of, of uh, management, whether it's physical manufacturing or you know people like team topologies and things like that. They all apply to the same thing. And APIs to me is just one of that one area that seems kind of interesting, and that's the one that I focused on. 
Yeah, the, that's what I like about the book, Continuous API Management is the continuous part. And yeah. I know a lot of companies that I work with are like, well, we, we've got to do API management. Have we done API management yet? We bought Apogee, Mastery, MuleSoft, yep. whatever. Check, we're done, right? Yep. We're done yeah. with management. That's been done, <laughs> taken care of. And it's like, no, this is a journey. This is yeah. an ongoing, this is continuous. And this yeah. is more hu more about the human aspect, the organizational aspect. And is is it is API management something that business users should care about? Or is it just developers? Um, business users should care about it the same way they care about product management, the same way they care about you know uh, 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 market management, all the other things, because they affect the business. API, in, in the way that we talk about it and the way I talk about it to the customers, APIs are the vector for your business, right? They're, the APIs don't exist because they exist because you have a you have a business and there's a business solution to solve. So uh, that business grows, that business evolves, the market changes. There's there are these arcs of you know maturity, and the APIs play into that as well. You want to invest in the APIs that are going to make a material difference to your bottom line. You don't want to spend time on APIs that don't make a difference. You don't want to spend time on APIs that actually hurt your bottom line. Uh, you don't want to release a product that cannibalizes some other major product that you have without thinking about the implications first. So I think in that sense, you do. Now, just like product management, whether, you know, what material you're working with, whether it's metals or paper or liquids or chemistry or whatever, you're going to need experts. You're going to need engineers. You're going to need people who understand the technical details. Uh, and those folks need to spend just sort of a, you know, same amount of time on the business aspects too. So yeah, if, if, you know, if I'm running a business, I need to understand what, what's going on in that API management space. That doesn't mean I need to be in charge of it. I may need to get a, an expert, but it'll affect my bottom line. Then I need to be paying attention. Yeah. And one of the areas I, I as I work with different, uh, enterprise orgs at Postman, one of the areas, because Postman's known as a as a as a testing solution, um, amongst other things. And when I when I talk to leadership, when they wake up to the potential of Postman, they're thinking about quality because they they're on this journey. They realize it's a journey. They realize they're needing APIs. They're producing a lot of APIs across many teams, and the quality isn't always the same across all of them. So. When it comes to the quality of APIs, you know, and thinking this this show is for business leadership, what what should folks be thinking about when it comes to helping ensure quality and consistency across teams? Yeah, um, one of the things I talk a lot about when I talk to companies is process, is pattern. Um, you know, when you think about Andy Grove, he needed to drive quality into creating uh, microchips. They were very expensive. You would create hundreds of chips on a disk. And if you screwed that disk up, all those chips were no good, right? It was very, very important. So that whole total quality management culture, you know, in the 70s uh, uh, grew up out of that space. So what you need is a process and a pattern and consistency. There are times when you need to be creative and there's times when you need to be automated, right? Creative is when you're designing that chip, when you're designing that API, when you're when you're designing that interface for users to develop. When you're uh, coding it and building it and releasing it, you need to be automated, mechanical, and predictable. 
every single time. And the way you improve quality is by, by driving out variability in the system that you're using to manufacture whatever that is. So once you have that design document, once you have that open API spec or that, or that uh, RDF uh, you know, ontology, whatever the thing that's driving that first piece, now it's time to start getting your process in place. So quality is about driving, you know, consistency is about driving out variability. And once you drive out variability in your process, in your process model, now you can start focusing on the tiny things, on the smaller things. So this whole idea of uh, site reliability engineering and chaos engineering is a way to start poking at your existing process and your existing output. And, and that's stress testing, right? So we know in physical uh, products, we will stress test an item, you know, we'll put enough pressure on it until it breaks to figure out where it breaks. Like, did it actually meet our quality, quality specifications? That's what SRE and chaos engineering are doing. They're stress testing until things break. Netflix has a great history of helping people understand how to start building these kinds of systems. So the way you drive quality in is driving variability out. And I think a key way to do that is to separate that creative activity from that engineering focused repeatable activity. And much of DevOps is all about creating that consistency and driving variability out of that whole process of check-in and test and build and mount and, and you know release and all that. So I think to, when I talk to companies, I say, if you wanna be able to increase quality, drive out variability, add consistency, and then start to manage that process. And really, when you look back all the way to Toyota, uh, Demings and 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 Schuert and all these other people who are helping, you know, kind of redesign manufacturing in the in the late 40s and 50s and 60s. They were doing the same kind of thing. That's what observability is all about, really, to me. I if, if that makes kind of sense. Yeah, no, I mean observability is is being able to uh, observe based upon the existing output. So having right. having man a, a management process having you know, uh, an awareness of your overall system is pretty key to that. And so how does design fit into that? Is, is, how does design fit into to laying the groundwork for what you just described? Right, so design, design can, uh, can really benefit from the same kind of process engineering as well. You know, a design process that includes interviews that, have you done the interview? Have you, uh, have you talked to the stakeholders? Do you have a story, like write an API story? Do you have a short story that explains what this API is for, what it, what it manipulates and what it does? Now, have you produced a diagram that actually shows what the workflow processes are for that? Have you produced a vocabulary document and match that vocabulary document against the company's vocabulary document so you know that when you release this API, it's gonna be able to speak to other parts of the system relatively easily? Do you have a definition document like an, uh, like an async API or an open API document that actually is going to be the blueprint that people can use? So there are all these assets that you have to produce. So there's a build, there's a DevOps pipeline, there's a build pipeline for the, uh, for the design process as well. Um, sketches and prototypes and uh, assets like diagrams and documents and definitions and stories and interviews and all these things and wireframes, they're all part of that process. If you try to bring a design, uh, like a, a blueprint to my creative developer team and you haven't done all these other things ahead of time, I'm gonna stop you. 
You need to finish the process. That's how you get, drive variability out and quality in. And none of what I talked about had to do with color schemes or sizes of fonts or whether or not the URL has a question mark in. Those are implementation details that are gonna be decided by the technology and the style that's required. But the process of all those other things, that's how design can become consistent and manageable too, because now I have a dashboard. I've got five design teams working on 10 APIs and I know they're on the, they're on the, uh, they're on the vocabulary phase here, they're on the uh, description phase here, they're on the interview phase here, and that's another observability dashboard that helps me with my continuous management. And so all of this, I mean, this is something now in 2021, every company's dealing with this. this isn't just a tech company problem. Oh yeah. Average healthcare, insurance, banks oh, yeah. are, are dealing with this. And and one way to describe this is that's been thrown out, and we have a lot of phrases we use in the space, but digital transformation is one that has right. stuck with and and seems to be continuing and 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 having traction over over a long period is it is it meaningful in the organizations you've talked to does it does it actually translate into real things happening or is it just marketing and hype oh it definitely can translate into something meaningful and i use the phrase uh, i i tell people uh that you know you can get a hold of transformation what i tell people is if that things are transforming around you while you stand here the market is transforming, the customers are transforming, the, the playing field is transforming. So you can have transform, transformation happen to you, or you can actually start to take a hold of that transformation and try to get ahead of it and make it work for you. So I definitely think transformation is important. You know, the buggy whip industry got transformed right out of business. But if you, if you kind of transformed yourself from a buggy whip company into a transportation encouragement company, there's lots of other possibilities. Suddenly now you're, you're selling, you know, motor fuel and things like this. So you always have this opportunity. So I think digital transformation is important. Now the digital side of it, um, I was just talking with some customers about it this week. What is digital? What, what, what's digital about all this? And I think it is this notion of having access to this virtual world. We can collect so many things. We call them KPIs and OKRs using some of the same background from Andy Grove, which we were talking about earlier, objectives and key results and key performance indicators, metrics. We have so many more metrics at our disposal than we, than we did before, and it's free, it's cheap, it's easy. There are syslogs everywhere. So uh, you can use that kind of information to monitor and manage and transform things. I can pay attention to things at a scale I didn't in the past, so I think transformation is really easier than ever. Um, you can still ignore it. Um, I, I, there's a quote, I can't remember what it was. Um, in business, uh, uh, transformation is an option, but in life it's inevitable, right? So you have to you know, kind of decide where you are on that. So yeah, I think transformation is super important. Well, and I think it's one of the most effective carrots, well, I would say sticks also. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Folks don't want to become irrelevant. You don't want to be that buggy yeah. whip manufacturer that's like, that's right. I've been doing this for my whole life. My father did it. Yep. I'm going to keep doing it. You've, yep. you've got to be able to be flexible. You've got to be able to adjust. And it's in a digital realm. The velocity is significantly 
uh, quicker uh, as yep. far as that change is concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yep. so, so I think, I mean, I feel like uh, distilling things down into meaningful phrases so folks can get on board and specifically business as well as technological. So I think from a technical side, digital transformation may seem uh, like it's not as meaningful. But I think if we can come up with a kind of a circus tent that we can all work under and, and come up with phrases that are meaningful, you know, digital transformation is one because it, it encompasses a lot of the things you talked about when across design, across management, across quality that I think developers can get on board with as well as business folks can get on board with. And then I think it, it enables the type of storytelling that you that you talked about earlier on is it allows uh, business, meaningful business stories to kind of be be shared and told of why we're doing this, why it matters and and helps us get there. So now yeah. when it comes to when it comes to doing this on the ground, um, where do organizations need to start? I mean, and this this is a silly question, I feel like, because folks are already on their journey. Everybody I talk to, you, you know, there I get this question. Well, where do we start with digital transformation? What should we be doing? Like, well, you're already doing APIs. I can guarantee that you're just probably not doing them with a strategy. So what are your recommendations when someone asks you that question? Where do I begin? Well, you know, I think I'm pretty sure this is Adrian Cocroft's line. Adrian worked at Netflix. Uh, he was their cloud CTO, I think. I, I'm not sure he might be at Amazon now. I've kind of lost track of where Adrian is. But the quote that uh, I like from Adrian is when he was trying to do this transformational work at uh, Netflix, because, you know, they were used to they, they were a completely a business that mailed DVDs. Suddenly they had to transform into a streaming business. That's a big leap. Um, and he said, we would look for the smallest thing that we could change and learn the most. What's the smallest thing we can change and learn from? Let's go do that. And then they would do that. And then they would say, well, what's the next smallest thing? Now that we've learned that, what's the next smallest thing we could do? And they kept building upon building. And, and I like that story because it, it really is based on the notion of taking a step. You know, the old, you know, journey begins with the first step kind of thing. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a story that resonates. Uh, often I tell organizations whether, like you say, um, whether they know it or not, they're already in it, right? Um, you, you can't be outside the system. You are the system. This is the system, right? Yeah. You can alter the system. Um, if you think it needs to be altered in some way, go find some space. I typically would tell organizations, find some uh, non-critical, non-trivial thing to start with. In other words, You've probably got something that's internal reporting or internal process modeling that isn't going to directly affect your production line. It's not going to knock all your products off the shelves. And you want to start there. And then you need to find some willing co-conspirators. Find some people in the organization that are willing to take a risk, that are willing to take a chance to try something new, to learn something new. And then set them up. Set them up for success. Say, okay, you're going to work on this thing that we haven't worked on for several years. We don't really know what it's going to be like yet, but here's the tools. What tools do you think you need? Here are the missions. This is what you need to do. And then time box everything. We know from personal experience that time boxing works. Uh, you know, whether you're, you're, you're working with a little 
timer or whether a large organization, time box for 30, 60, 90 days and give people a chance. Use the lean method. So I usually tell people start to change something somewhere. And then the big thing is you have to realize when you change that, it's going to pop out over here. It's a system. So when you start making changes, it's going to affect somebody else. They may or may not like that. Why is Mike's team coming in at all hours working in some garage somewhere on some project that we know nothing about instead of uh, coming into my team? Why is it suddenly they get to use DevOps tools and I don't get to use DevOps? You're always going to have other aspects of all this because you're in a system. So poking at the system means things are going to happen somewhere else. But if you take it a step at a time and don't do what I call big bets, it's not Texas Hold'em, it's not all in. You know, we're going to be a totally transformed company by the end of the year. There we go. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. Step by step by step. And then I think, which is something that you started this conversation with, then really you realize that you're always taking the next step forever. This is, we're not done with change management. We're not done with transformation or done with APIs. We just keep constantly taking another step. That's our job. That's what we do. And to me, that's the fun part. And you're perpetually learning the system. You're perpetually understanding the dependencies within the system. You're identifying, hey, look, we can measure this output and understand, you know, and you're evolving observability by poking. And and soon it just becomes natural. This is how we do this is how we work and that's i think the important part of digital transformation it's not like okay everything's converted to digital now we're transformed and i i joke up on twitter about that a lot where it's like like i feel like i'm done with my digital trend and that's the what i'm trying to get at is is this is a journey where it's it's non-stop but at some point you're going to feel comfortable more comfortable in your skin with change and you're going to yep. be able to do this. And and I think in this era right now, especially with uh, with COVID and coming out of the pandemic, I've got some uh, guests lined up for future episodes where we're going to talk about um, remote first as, as a theory, you know, to build on yeah. API first, you know, remote yeah. first and talk about how APIs evolve or, or impact how we run our businesses. And whether we're everything's got to be done in person, um, everything can be done remotely, and so it's it's shifted our behavior. Mm-hmm. Kind of looking forward, how is this? You know, how's the pandemic impacted you? You you mentioned a little bit about you know your travel and whatnot. What um, as far as your advice and what you're going to be you know, stories you're going to be telling and the advice you're going to be giving when you're consulting? How is it? How has it shifted? Well, it's definitely shifted um, away from me being there in person. Um, so if I would, if, uh, you know, two years ago, if I was going to teach with you, um, I would travel. I'd travel there a day ahead. If it was, uh, if it involved an ocean, maybe two days ahead, I would spend several days with you to make sure that it was worth the effort. And then I would spend another day or two getting back home. So just visiting with one company would really be a week's worth, worth of activity. Now, locally here in the States where I am, I could probably you know, leave on one day, do a day and leave on the next day. But it was a, there was a big investment. So that limited my reach in a lot of ways. There were a lot of organizations that could not afford that. But now... I can talk to someone for an hour or two. Now there's still, you know, prep and down, but that prep is no longer in days, it's in hours. 
right? So now I have I can reach organizations that I did was not able to reach before and interact in ways that I was not able to interact before. And that includes not just teaching or just lecturing, but it also means listening. So people can bring ideas to me, challenges to me, things they've been working on that it would have been very expensive for them to do before. So it's really changed the way I think about what I can contribute and what I can learn from people. I think it's a lot easier now than it was two years ago. At the same time, I know from all of the training that I'm doing that there I'm missing a piece when I'm face-to-face. Uh, I was just reading some studies on how different parts of the brain activate when you're in person versus when you're looking on screen. And those parts of the brain that are activated are super, super important. So um, I have to figure out how to balance this better. I used to all be balanced way, way on the side of being in person. I spent the last 18 months being balanced way, way, way on the side of being remote. I'm going to have to figure out how to mix that. And I'm not, I'm not sure yet. It's going to be a bit of a, a challenge for me. Um, so I think that's a thing that, that's changed a lot. Um, I think one of the things we talk about, you know, the big resignation and the way things people are, people are looking at things differently is I think a lot of organizations, a lot of enterprises I've talked to have realized there are definitely things that we don't need to do in person. Some of them are saying there are definitely things we don't need to do. Right. They've suddenly realized, you know, I did it because we were here. You know, we were physically here, it was fine, it wasn't a big cost, but now it's a big cost to do. So I think organizations up and down are, are given the opportunity now to rethink, just like we thought about before, what the management style is. What, what take creatives and what's automated? What's, what's, what's process that we wanna drive variability out of? A lot of times those, those processes that we want to be repeatable and non-variable, they can be done remotely. They can be done through builds, they can be done through scripts, they can be done through tooling, or they can be done through a kind of a face-to-face activity uh, that doesn't require a lot of interpersonal creativity. But designing a product, meeting with a customer, understanding your audience, making a real connection with investors or with, uh, with some of your key customers, that still means physical approach. So I think we're we're going to have another chance to kind of redefine that space, and that I'm going through that as a you know as an individual, and I see enterprises going through that as well. How do we start to adjust? What did we learn, and what's that what's that going to mean for us improving the experience for everyone involved, whether it's customers uh, or uh, members of the organization? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it feels like an opportunity for to me to, for to yeah. reassess all of this and try yeah. to think through these processes and and it's it's going to benefit our digital transformation overall to be able to, yep. to to pick things apart rethink things understand where our priorities are reassess and understand where where the value is it's not just about saving money you know but yeah. as you said we could double down in some areas that kind of reinforce all right we're losing this face to face as part of this, but here's how we can compensate for that. Yeah. And, but hey, in these processes, we have to have the face-to-face and and, we, and here's why we've identified it super important. Yep, and I think the same thing we were talking about earlier about this idea of observability as part of management, I've seen enterprises t- really take this by, by the handle and say, well, let's set some OKRs, KPIs, let's set some metrics on what we think a good process is or a quality experience is or, 
or uh, good self-care for employees when they're remote, all these things. Let's pay attention to this and let's make sure we don't over-rotate. Let's not miss the important elements. Let's not just you know throw darts without paying attention. So I'm also very encouraged that the last several years here in our tech sphere, uh, being able to observe, being able to quantify and add that as part of our decision-making is gonna also let us quantify this remote and in-person experience. What's it like for me to sit here with the lights on at my screen for a certain amount of time every day and start to rethink some of that as well so that we really do take the positive step forward and not a negative step backward in terms of missing the boat and finding out that we've lost the handle on connecting with our colleagues, with our employees with the people that matter the most to the success of our products. So it's it's a combination of all those things. And this is not gonna be without pain. Um, there are things that I lose out on. There are things that I don't get to do because I'm not there. And that could be troublesome. There are jobs that uh, maybe some people in the organization uh, that I used to be dependent upon to do, but now that's been automated. All of this is gonna play out and we need to make sure we're very clear-eyed about how we're going forward. Now, I think it's a great opportunity, and with great opportunities come great responsibility. Wow, I think that's that's probably a good note to end or or ramp down on here. <laughs> I think right. that's some great advice as we kind of exit the. We're hopefully we're we're emerging out of the pandemic here and yep. and into a new world. It's not going to be like it was before. Um, but I like, right. you know, rather than just ending on, on a business note, I, I like to take it back into the personal realm. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of traveling with you. I've hung out with you on, on a couple continents. Mm -hmm. what, yeah. what country do you miss the most traveling? Man, that's a, that's a terrible question to ask. <laughs> I'm going to upset someone. You know, um, I, I'll say, man, see, I... Every time I do this, I think, oh, I really liked it there. I really liked it there. Um, I really, here's, here's what I miss. This is going to sound goofy, but here's what I miss. I miss Scandinavia in the winter. And I miss the Mediterranean in the summer. Those are the two things that really strike me. I have such great experiences and they relate to sort of this sort of seasonal nature. Now, what strikes me when I when I say this is I named two northern hemisphere places, right? I've spent a lot of time uh, in, in Australia as well and a little bit in New Zealand. And honestly, I miss that just about any time. I can conjure up a wonderful place in the southern hemisphere for almost any time of the year. Same for Brazil and Argentina uh, and Uruguay. I mean, uh, Colombia. I mean, there's, there's all these amazing places. I've been so, so lucky to be able to travel, to be able to even have this kind of thought, this kind of idea. Uh, I miss, I miss some aspect of just about every place I've been. And that, that, that's, I kind of, I like that. I can recall things and say, yeah, that was very cool when I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Really good kind of a cop out maybe, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I think you, you took it to in a good direction. So one one more personal question to really get at sure. the, the core of Mike, I would say. Oh boy. Is okay. And and back to back to your roots as a musician. So All right. what song, what song impacted you and and who you are the most as you were growing up? 
that's that's tough. So I grew up um, as a young kid uh, in like grade school in Illinois, in, in Chicago area. Um, and my father was a tenor saxophone player in a dance band, like sort of a jazz band. So I grew up listening to uh, jazz music, jazz uh, musicians, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, all these other people when I was a kid. When I moved in high school, I moved to Michigan. Now I get to listen to Motown, Barry Gordy. I listen to The Sound of Philadelphia, uh, Gamble and Huff, uh, Quincy Jones. There's my connection to jazz. I mean, all through my, my school life, if I go back into that, and I'm, I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now, there was all this kind of music that, that really ranged from you know, popular music, and it was really categorical, like uh, Motown sound or a sound of Philadelphia, which was highly, highly produced sound or, uh, you know, jazz sounds. I watched a lot of movies and television uh, because I was going to be in musical theater. I sang musicals all the time. So all these dorky kind of, you know, 1940s, 1930s musicals. One of my favorite musicals was Music Man, uh, which is a goofy is a, is a sound of a goofy musical about a guy, a, a shyster that comes to town to sell everybody instruments. He has no idea how to play, you know, which yeah. is uh, sort yeah. of a scary metaphor for what I do when I come to an enterprise. But uh, all these things just play in my head. So I guess I would say when I was in high school, I mean, it was totally because of where I was, you know, in Michigan, it was Barry Gordy. But, you know, Gamblin' Huff, the Spinners, the Shy Lights, uh, all those kinds of groups, those really made a difference to me. Nice, nice. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you for your time today. I'm really yeah. stoked to uh, have this conversation with you. Um, I always love talking so to you. What, I always love it. Yeah, we have so we have uh, API storytelling, which is another yeah. kind of series we do on Fridays. I'll give a little plug there. Um, what's what's when's uh, continuous API management going to be coming out again? So. Um, it's, it's slated for the fall. We're in final edits now. We got lots of reviewer comments back. And as usual, we've got some fantastic suggestions that are going to be painful to do. <laughs> so we've got some work, got a couple of months of editing to do. But it'll probably go to production sometime in August. And then it usually takes several months to go through the production process. So this fall is when we'll get the continuous API management book out. I've already, I'm just gonna like take, a, take an advantage of you here. I've already started working on a new book project for early to mid 2022. Uh, and that's going to be uh, another very detailed project. It's gonna be a recipe book or cookbook on distributed application building uh, on the web. So I'm just starting to get started on that. So there's lots sort of coming along on that space. So in the fall, we'll get the second edition of continuous APIs and then hopefully Within six months or so, there'll be another book on uh, on web. It'll be, I'm sure it'll have the word RESTful in it if I if I have a shot at it, right? So it'll probably be something about microservices and REST and something, something, something. But I'm excited about that. I'm having a lot of fun building it already. Nice. Well, looking forward to it. And uh, thanks for joining me, sir. Always a pleasure. Good to see you. Take care of yourself. Stay safe. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. All right. Thank you.